it goes to show that even when you are, in my instance, you know, managing director, you still don't know it all. And so I think having that propensity to kind of tap into it and, and, and explore that, it, for me anyway, was quite enriching. Hi, I'm Darren Woolley, founder and CEO of Trinity P3 Marketing Management Consultancy, and welcome to Managing Marketing, a weekly podcast where we discuss the issues and opportunities facing marketing, media and advertising with industry thought leaders and practitioners. Today, I'm sitting down with Paul Everson, Director and Chief Growth Officer at Paper and Spark, an independent consulting firm specialising in business transformation through data-driven strategy digital transformation, marketing strategy, content marketing, CX, UX, conversational design and communications who work with deep expertise in health, pharmaceuticals and government sectors. But Paul has also enjoyed a career with leadership roles in many of the world's most famous agency brands, including J. Walter Thompson, Leo Burnett, Saatchi and Saatchi and Young and Rubicum. He's also a lecturer an advisory board member, a non-executive director, and a recent graduate of the Australian Institute of Company Directors. Welcome, Paul. Thank you. Thanks, Darren, for having me. Well, look, um, you know, when I started thinking about, because we've known each other for years, yeah, more more than a decade, (laughs) let's say, and, you know, when you feel like, well, I've known Paul in the context of, you know, Leo Burnett's and J. Walter Thompson, and then more recently, with the consulting work that you're doing. But it's not until you start to look someone up, so to speak, someone that you feel you know, that just suddenly realise, my God, there's so many more dimensions to this person than I realised. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, it's quite a list there that you you read through, but um, had a fruitful and colourful career. Well, one of the things I noticed, Paul, is that, you know, a lot of people on their LinkedIn profile, for instance, will have perhaps their base degree. That, or you know some further education, but you've really appeared to embrace all of the opportunities that your professional career has offered to learn something new, haven't you? I have, yeah, and I think um, you know it's an age-old saying, you know, a learner of life, and and I genuinely believe that. But I'm someone who over-indexes on growth as a value trait, and so for me, it's constantly about pushing myself. And that comes through learning and education from all manner of facts, whether that be um, an in-house leadership course that the company I'm working for is running or my own private studies, um, like you referenced there, the AICD, um, you know, recently completed that um, off my own bat. And, um, you know, it's, it's so I can stay abreast and, and up to date. And, um, yeah, and I like learning. I like being able to methodically work through things to be able to put them into practice in my professional life. Well, you know, there's some interesting ones here. The McDonald's Hamburger University. Now, that must have been when you were at Leo Burnett's. Correct, yeah. So I ran the uh, McDonald's business for the better part of seven years, I believe. Um, And through that, um, obviously, you work quite closely with the McDonald's marketing team um, and you are intrinsic to that business. And they call it ketchup in your veins. And so part of that was going off to Hamburger University where you learn about the operations and the understanding of the McDonald's business and that framework because it helps from a marketing perspective when you are presenting ideas and marketing campaigns as to how the infrastructure of the business works. That's fantastic because, you know, one of the things in this sort of fast-paced world 
is a lot of marketers forget to create opportunities for their agencies to really get under the skin of the business, don't they? They do. I've been quite lucky in my career if you look back at the likes of Procter & Gamble, McDonald's, um, Subway um, in more recent times at J. Walter Thompson, and all of those bigger brands really immersed the agency within their their own um, understanding and learning of the product. And I think it, it paid dividends because we all had a collective understanding of how that how that works rather than just sitting and watching a PowerPoint presentation of this is our product, <laughs> this is what we do. So for that, I'm incredibly grateful um, for that investment of time um, because I think it paid off in the work and the relationship that we had. Yeah, well, I think it was uh, David Ogilvy that said that the best creative work actually comes from understanding the client's uh, business and and really getting in there and asking questions and, and pointed to the Rolls-Royce ad <laughs> where, you know, at 60 miles an hour, the only sound you'll hear is the clock and the engineer at Rolls-Royce said, yes, we must fix that clock one day. But, it, you know, it came out of that intimate understanding of the product. Uh, yeah, look, um, I mean, that's a great example and I think to, you know, as creatives or people who are developing strategy, you know, you have to be consumers of life. And so obviously not only observing from a consumer perspective, but also look internally at what's going on. And some of the best insights that we've been able to pull out is through those immersion sessions um, and being curious and asking the questions around, you know, did a great campaign for McDonald's around, you know, in early times of their sustainability, you know, all their um, play equipment and, you um, surfaces are all made from you know um, used tires and so that was a really rich insight that we were able to play back so you know not through not asking or having an immersion session would we have been able to discover that trinity p3 now there's some great ones here hyper island which is a world-class digital and technology course what was how was that? That was good. That was an immersion session um, over at uh, Cockatoo Island, actually. Um, again, with with the Burnett's team, and I think one thing about um, Burnett's back in the day, and hopefully still to today, is you know they they did invest in um, uh, people and invested in performance development, and Hyper Island was one of those courses. Um, it was intense. It was a two day offsite, but um, hugely enriching. And, um, you know, probably ahead of its time when I did it as well, you know, coming into that era of um, digital transformation and digital disruption. I mean, now it's just life. Yes. But back then, no, no. we were still, you know, it was still new to us. Um, so, yeah, hugely beneficial. Well, and also you've obviously invested in people as well and your management of them, the Living Leader course, mm-hmm. the obviously the Australian Institute of Company Directors, and the Marketing Academy. I mean, these are all really strong people-focused training, aren't they? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess the further up the chain you go and, uh, you know, it becomes less about, um, you know, the work per se. I mean, the work is still very important, but particularly when you're in those leadership roles, first and foremost is people, you know, and, um, you know, lucky I like people, so that's good. Um, and, and I'm good at working with them. But you still need to just make sure that you are constantly refining and understanding how to um, start approaching um, certain situations. And so courses um, 
you know, like the Living Leader and the Marketing Academy um, actually prepare you for that. So these are courses that are for senior leaders and when you are managing large teams of people. The Marketing Academy by name is slightly misleading. It's, it's um, you know, it's not a skills-based course. It is a leadership course on not only personal development, but how to manage and get the best out of others. Um, and that is a, you know, highly sought after course that I'm forever grateful to be, um, you know, accepted into that alum and um, and working with those guys for the better part of nine months. So, Because mm. they've got some terrific uh, uh, lecturers or speakers or whatever, you know, whatever title, but people that are really inspirational in what they've achieved in their own right as marketers and leaders. Yeah, um, you know, there's some big names that um, either A, have been through the course or have lent their time um, to that. And I was lucky in in my cohort um, to be placed with some, some really people, you know, strong marketers, strong leaders that I look up to in that mentoring um, advice scenario. And, um, you know, it goes to show that even when you are, in my instance, you know, managing director, you still don't know it all. Mm. And so I think having that that um, propensity to kind of, um, you know, tap into it and, and, and explore that, it, for me anyway, was quite enriching. Yeah, I don't think you ever know it all. If you do, you might as well give up, you know. Correct. Nothing What's more the fun? To lose. Yeah. Trinity P3. Uh, now, I want to take you back, Paul, to uh, little Paul Everson sitting there in secondary school and uh, deciding what you're going to do as a tertiary education and, and what made you choose and, and sort of set the career path around commerce and particularly marketing? Yeah, wow, you're taking me back a fair while now, Darren. But um, I always had a fascination with brands um, and so when I was growing up, Lynx was, you know, a, a brand that I used um, that my mum would buy me. Um, and I'd look a at Unilever the, brand. Unilever brand. But, um, you know, I, I would look at those ads and the storytelling. There's a famous, that same famous ad of getting un- undressed, it's called. Um, and it plays back in time of, um, you know, Lynx is all about, you know, se- sexual prowess and, you know, masculinity. And um, I just fell in love with that storytelling and I was like, I want a part of that. Um, and there was another part that was also fascinated me, the making of and the how things came to, to be. So not only the narrative but the actual production, um, execution of it. So I went and did a marketing degree and um, turns out hopefully was quite good at it. <laughs> <laughs> well, the proof is in the, uh, the career. You know? And as I said, you've worked for some of the biggest names in advertising. You know, and it was interesting, as I was reading through it, I suddenly realised all these agencies have names of men on them. You know, it was you know, in this uh, day and age of, you know, we're much more uh, aware of, of the benefits of diversity and equity and, and inclusion. But the agencies were all created sort of mid to late 20th century and all by men, you know, Saatchi and Saatchi, Leo Burnett was early 20th century. J. Walter Thompson was actually the century before. Uh, it's interesting, isn't it? It is interesting, and, and I'm glad it's changing, um, yeah. you know, in terms of 
particularly now um, with the indies coming through and a lot of female founders and for that you know I praise and think yeah we have we've come a long way since that time but no one's sticking their name on the door anymore <laughs> no are one's they? sticking their name on the door no you're right actually I mean some still are there's still some out there the, the indies that still put their not names many on, but not many no you're right they're all coming up with um, obscure um, you know, I guess to create some differentiation in the marketplace, right? And, um, you know, how to actually break through that clutter as well, because at the end of the day, they're businesses that need to promote themselves as well. Trinity P3. One of my favourite agency names was, I don't know if you know this, but do you know the original name of Grey Advertising? It was Fats and Wallenstein. So it was good. two good Jewish boys on Madison Avenue who started the agency with their name on it. And uh, during the First World War, there was quite an anti-Semitic feeling in, in the US. So they decided that uh, they'd need to change the name and they uh, called it Grey Advertising and the rest, as they say, is history. So there wow. is no Mr Grey. There's just two good Jewish boys working in advertising called uh, Valenstein and Fats. Interesting. I like that. Yeah. It's a, it's a, a good bit of history. But, look, um, we're actually, the reason for catching up is mm. that a lot of the work you're doing today is consulting and advising to not-for-profits and charities um, particularly. And, and, and I know it's a personal interest of yours as well, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I guess it, it stems from when I was a kid. Um, Mum was a nurse um, and, you know, raised um, in a family to give back. So for as long as I can remember, have always done community work, charity work um, and, and always been in that position to be able to do so. So for that, I'm, I'm very grateful. But I spent most of my youth, well, late, later youth, um, volunteering at the Starlight Express Room at Westmead Children's Hospital. So um, we'd go there with my mum every one Saturday a month and we would we would literally go to the Starlight Express Room and hang out with the kids. And we thought it was fun, but, you know, the, the whole premise around Starlight is obviously so they can ex- escape what they're doing. And so I guess it's always been ingrained in me. And I guess once I got into marketing and, and, and advertising, I always gravitated towards the non-for-profits within the agencies. Um, so, you know, Starlight and WWF, more recently the Indigenous um, Literacy Foundation, um, and started to really work with them to, to realise actually there's a, there's a job to be done there and a skill of ours as marketers um, can actually help them because, um, you know, a lot of these charities, not the ones I've mentioned, but just, you know, there's, there's many of them, I just don't have the infrastructure or the resources to be able to to, to put them to to market, and so yeah, it's become a um, it's become a real interest of mine, and it stems from a passion. Well, you you said there's a lot of them. There's over sixty thousand registered charities in Australia alone. Sixty thousand. Yeah. Close. And then when they talk for not for profits, because they are different. You know, a registered charity is different for a not than from a not for profit. And this apparently includes all of the trusts and all of those that are set up for, for doing good. There's over 600,000 not-for-profits. But charities alone, 
according to the uh, Australian Tax Office, had a turnover about two years ago of $150 billion for that year. I mean, that's a huge category, isn't it? It's a massive category. And if you just look at the number in terms of registered charities, from a marketing perspective, all that clutter, you know, there's a lot of them, many of them probably trying to do the same things. And so how do you stand out in that? And how do you actually start to develop the cause, whether that be through funding or whether that be through activism, i.e. create action off the back of it. And so it's an interesting conundrum um, that I've been fascinated with and, um, and, you know, really enjoying working with Can't Help Everybody, but for those that I am, um, really starting to put them on a strategic path to help reach their objectives like you would do for any private business. Yeah. It's interesting as well because a lot of these charities are started by people with the best intentions. Mm-hmm. You know, either something has uh, happened to them you know, tragically or they've had uh, you know, um, something uh, that they've become passionate about, uh, as you said, the Starlight Room, you know, where there's a need that is not being fulfilled by government or other uh, other areas of society. And, and they've set up a, a trust or a charity to help that. Others have been you know, long-term. You know, many uh, religious organisations, for instance, will have organised charities to, to do um, various you know, good works. But it's interesting because they're all basically competing for the same pool of you know, generosity amongst the population. What is there, 26 million mm-hmm. people in Australia? You know, $150 billion from 26 million people, you'd have to say there's a point where you're basically just competing against each other. Yeah, and I think from that personal experience, it's, it either comes from, from purpose or they are generally trying to develop social change and, and actually create good in the world. To your point, you know, governments in some instances should be doing certain charities, whether it's saving the reef or doing some of those more, um, you know, sustainable um, environmental causes that are out there. But I think when you talk about the giving, um, you know, charities really rely on kind of three pools of money. One is kind of grants, and mm-hmm. we know that not everybody's getting a grant. To, to actually get a grant from the government is actually quite a challenging process for these charities obviously through philanthropy and that, um, that that cause there. And if you're a bigger one, you're probably well known and therefore more likely. But to your point, it's around community giving and that propensity to give, um, the, the studies and the, the science behind that is actually really hard to untap because you know yourself as a consumer or a community um, person, um, what's going to make you stop and give out of your wallet? Right. Most people generally have one, maybe two chosen charities and or causes that they will give to. The rest of it is just nice to have and it's like, you're doing a good job. Trinity P3. I recall seeing a Ricky Gervais video where he's walking along and this, uh, you know, I call them professional uh, charity people stops him and says you know uh, do, do you want to help the children of Africa and he goes no no I'm too busy oh you don't care about children 
the, this guy shouts at him and he stops and he turns around and he says, you're just doing this for a job. You're getting paid to do this. You don't care about the children. You know, and he really has a go at the guy, right? I've, I've not seen that, but, um, I mean, interesting take on things. I mean, hopefully there is some um, good in what that guy is doing as well as getting paid. But, you know, it is that. I mean, you are asking people particularly, you know, to, to stop their day and to consider and give. And so that's why the why for these charities is so important. And that's where the fundamentals of marketing really come into play to be able to unpack that and understand and, and resonate at an emotional level with people to be able to give. And yet my experience is that for the vast majority of charities, marketing is not necessarily core to the way they're set up, at least for the, the in the early days. And even some of the bigger charities, they're much more focused on what I'd call almost corporate relations and you know building the right connections than they are actually working out a marketing strategy to compete in the marketing space. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And I think, you know, over the course of my years of working with non-for-profits, um, that has been the case for some organisations. But I think once they get a taste of what marketing can actually deliver for them, um, you know, obviously reach, but obviously distinctiveness against that clutter of 60,000 and really start to project the why, um, which correlates into, you know, um, donations, yeah. then they can actually start to see the importance of marketing. But it, do it doesn't come from a natural place because, you know, a lot of these people, um, to your point earlier, have, have developed these charities or these non-for-profits out of adversity. So marketing is probably not their skill. No, but, but I think almost when they start to grow, that they're much more interested obviously in acquisition than they are thinking of marketing as the source of acquisition. And what I mean by that, Paul, is that you, know, you and I have grown up with a career in marketing and we understand you know, consumer propositions and, and actually understand the, where, how you position your brand within uh, the, the marketplace so that there has a competitive advantage and things like this or a distinctiveness about it. Mm -hmm. But a lot of it feels like it's driven by relationship marketing. And I know that's part of marketing, but it doesn't actually come from that place of thinking of it as a brand, first of all. Mm. Very few charities are comfortable thinking of themselves as brands, and yet that's exactly what they are. Yeah, you're exactly right, and, and that's where we come in as either advisors or um, agencies who to take on pro bono clients to really, you know, advise them um, and guide them on that way because, you know, to cut through that, the only way that's going to do that is marketing. I mean, of course you can do relationship marketing and you can, you know, work with corporates, and I guess it depends on what type of charity you've got set up and what it is you're trying to do. I just know from those ones that, that I've intimately worked with, um, very quickly they start to see that, that power of, um, you know, what a brand can actually deliver for them. And, you know, if they're actually working from a database marketing strategy, i.e. collecting a whole lot of contacts and, and building relationships with them, having an underlying marketing strategy that that works from 
is really important because it actually improves the efficacy of that uh, database marketing, doesn't it? Correct. And I think, you know, I don't think they realise the potential and the power that they're actually sitting on some of these um, non-for-profits because, again, it's just it's not a natural instinct to them. And as we know in our world, um, you know, data is king. And, you know, having that data, it's, it's how you use it and what you go and do with it. But I think, you know, in more recent times, um, you know, as the charities start to evolve, the, 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 the goal shifts or the focus shifts, I think, with regards to governance and practices and, and legal undertakings and policies and procedures and so on and so forth. Um, and so that's when data really comes, starts to come into play at a board level in any case. Yeah, absolutely. And look, a good example of that's uh, Movember, mm-hmm. who we've done work with over the years. And, and a lot of people uh, are critical of Movember because they've actually driven a charitable organisation who then collect donations and invest it for the long term. Um, and, and some people think that charity should be about taking all of the money they get and giving it to the relevant causes that they exist for. But I think Movember's following a strategy which we saw, remember when Red Nose, last mm-hmm. century, Red Nose was all the thing, all the rage as a charity for sudden infant death syndrome. But the novelty of the Red Nose wore off over time and they tried expanding it and finding other ways. Now, Movember, I think, very early on worked out that getting men to grow a moustache was going to eventually run out of novelty. So they've already turned themselves into a charitable uh, investment fund because they didn't just give all that money away, they invested it and now it's often the interest of those investments that are actually driving the charity. And it's a totally different strategy to some organisations which it's all about get, get as much money as we can in, keep enough to operate on and then hand the rest on. Yeah, and I think like like any brand, you know, you need to evolve and I think, you know, particularly with charities, if they have met their mission or it's become a little stale, then you have to reinvent yourself. And I think in those instances, the advice that, you know, if they are receiving backlash that I'd be giving is just ensure that it's, you know, there's full transparency in terms of what and how it is you are spending, you know, funding or, or community money that is coming through. And then, then it's up to the individual to determine whether or not they want to actually give to that. Um, but at the, at the end of the day, I mean, you know, they are trying to, you know, find a research and a cure for prostate cancer. So you have to kind of oh. look at the layers of messaging and go, actually, that's the end goal, how they choose to get there. It, they're, they're going through a journey and an evolution. Um, but at the end of the day, hopefully going to end up in the same result but no. I agree with you in terms of um, how do you keep reinventing um, from the red nose to the moustache and, and, and everything in between, right? Um, and that's where, you know, that's where particularly from an agency side when we worked on that, you can have a bit of fun yeah. um, and help, help, uh, help evolve those, um, those campaigns. Trinity P3. Well, you raise the agency issue, you know, often... Uh, working on a not-for-profit or charity was a real boost for the agency. You know, mm-hmm. the, it gave employees a sense of purpose and doing something other than just flogging product for their clients, didn't it? It did actually, and I think I think it was twofold. I think um, 
you know, particularly in the agencies that I was working with and the brands I was working on, it gave that outlet, but it also um, gave the broader agency a sense of purpose in terms of, um, you know, this is the cause we're going to support um, through pro bono work. Um, and so therefore, you know, put a stake in the ground to go, okay, this agency stands for this and therefore we're going to galvanise behind it. But they were highly sought after, um, you know, clients and briefs to work on, um, not only from um, suit strategists but particularly creatives because they knew it could be quite lucrative in terms of doing really good work. Yeah, which then, you know, can win awards, which then can attract the good talent to the agency and the clients uh, through the publicity. Yeah, exactly. And I think it works both ways. I mean, you know, you need to have a good understanding with your client as well to be able to say, you know what, the reason for this is, you know, of course we want to do good work and want to help, but there has to be some payoff in the end as well. And for that, you know, um, you know, hopefully going to put us on the map as well. One of the things we have seen uh, in the last 10 years at least uh, is when we help some charities with selecting agencies, the idea of doing the work pro bono has actually become few and far between. Now, one of those reasons is because agencies are not enjoying the sort of profit margins that they had before, but also because... Uh, some of the larger charities are not seen as the same creative or strategic opportunity that they were in the past. And you mentioned it in passing before, this idea that as charities grow, the role of governance, mm. and especially from the board level, means that they become increasingly risk adverse. Yeah, and I think it's, um, it, you know, it's certainly up to the appetite of the client, like in any situation, um, even private sector as well, but particularly for non-for-profits who, um, you know, it's probably new territory and new ground to go out with a campaign. Some are going to be a little bit more risk-averse, but there are others that are willing to push the boundaries, and I think it goes back to the, the level of the comfort of the board. And I know particularly in the instances where I've been presenting work to boards is you know, like anything, making sure there's the pre-sale, making sure you understand their limitations and their appetite before before you go in. Um, but, you know, I think at the end of the day, they all want to see a change. And so, you know, that can come from powerful creative. Trinity P3. So if there was a charity or a, a not-for-profit that was listening into this uh this podcast, this conversation, and they are not currently necessarily working with an agency or a consultant around their marketing. What are the sorts of considerations you'd say that is the starting point? Yeah, so I think like any relationship, making sure that there are, you know, common ground and common understanding I think there needs to be an authenticity as to the why the agency is going to come on board or why you would select that agency to make sure that there is a natural fit for that. And then understand what each is going to get out of that, particularly from a pro bono sense. So, you know, when it's a paid for service, you pay for a service and you get a certain expectation in return. With pro bonos, particularly working in larger type agencies, even media, medium agencies, 
There needs to be that full understanding of roles and responsibilities and what the output is going to be so that both can be held accountable. So like any contractual arrangement you would go into, I actually think it's more important um, for non-for-profits to make sure that is stitched up and clear at the start because you can get lost and I've seen it because, mm. you know, um, agencies are busy places and, you know, conflicting agendas and um, conflicting client issues and, and opportunities. And so often, um, you know, the, the pro bono is, is, is left to last and it's not, it's not out of any malice. It's just a natural cause of, oh, yeah. of the way the day operates. So I think having that clear understanding um, up front is key. Well, we say to uh, commercial clients all the time, what you don't pay for, you won't get. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so if you're a charity or not-for-profit that an agency is doing the work pro bono, there does need to be an agreement of expectations so that both parties know what they're going to meet. What would? What about if you're a charity? And I've seen this happen. Small agencies that want to get themselves on the map will often do campaign, speculative campaigns and contact the charity or, or not-for-profit and go, we've been thinking about this. What do you think of that? I think great. I, I think that's brilliant. Um, you know, there, there's opportunity for that. And I think um, I, I personally love the hunger. And you may just get a bite. Um, you know, some of these smaller charities are crying out for um, marketing expertise and if a smaller agency can bring an idea to the table that has mutual benefits for both parties, I say go for it. So, Paul, now put your uh, Australian Institute of Company Directors hat on. <laughs> of course, within reason. Within reason, of course. And I think <laughs> most most charities have some type of governance board um, and depending on the constitution, well, depending on what needs to get signed off by when in terms of how much delegation is put onto the executive or the founder or the owner, whoever, the, whoever it may be. And so hopefully it'll go through due diligence in order before it hits the marketplace. And then that's up to the appetite of the board based on their risk matrix as to whether or not they want to take something to market. And so, but, you know, no harm, no foul. Well, it's an, op- it. it's an opportunity, but I think uh, <clears throat> a better approach would be to actually develop a, a strategy, a positioning, so that you could actually execute over the long term. Depends, I guess. You could have a short-term strategy or not-for-profit or a long-term strategy. Yeah, look, I would hope that, you know, whoever is going in with speculative work has done their research and, and is presenting that. I certainly wouldn't turn up with just an idea. Um, so apologies, that that was a given in my mind that they would go with some kind of structure. No, I've, I've literally <laughs> seen, oh, yeah, a creative team going, oh, we had this idea for your, for your charity, you know, and it's just a one-off ad. Oh, right, no. It need, needs to have context and <laughs> uh, ensure it aligns to the purpose and the vision of, of that company. And, um, and, you know, a quick Google, you'll be able to find out all that information. Out there, right? so. <laughs> how, uh, and, and on a personal level, how are you finding the sort of world of um, advertising and marketing and and consulting, which was once described to me as the world of opportunity. Like it's expansive, there's always an opportunity. 
compared to the roles of, you know, you're a non-executive director, mm-hmm. you're acting on, uh, you're an advisory uh, board member, and now, you know, the Institute of Company Directors, which is more about governance and risk mitigation. Do you think there's a point where there's a conflict or is it easy to balance the two? So far, there hasn't been any conflict. And the reason I am on those boards and advisory boards um, is because of my skill set. So I think more and more marketers are getting a seat at the table um, and they're understanding that we can add value in the right ways. Um, and so for my instance, there hasn't been that that situation, but I guess it depends on the board construct and, and what their um, what their skills matrix looks like and what it is they need. The, the, the beauty of having marketers on non-for-profit boards is most boards need to do fundraising and most fundraising comes from a form of marketing. Mm. And so having that skill set on there, um, in my instance, and, and my fellow board uh, members can, can counter, has hopefully been invaluable because we've been able to guide and direct and, and, and mobilise, which is the beauty of working in agency land. We mobilise pretty quickly and we make stuff happen. Um, that land of opportunity you spoke about, everything's an opportunity. I still have that mindset. I still go into that. However, I do need to put a lens over it now based on the governance and the practices, um, particularly in the Australian Charities, which is a, a board or a governance, um, a body that you need to uphold. And so you just need to, you know, cross your T's and dot your I's and make sure thing. But, you know, um, I always go in a glass half full and then try and figure it out. But we get to a point where we go, actually, it can't work. But haven't come across that yet. I'm sure it'll come. <laughs> Well, yeah, where you find yourself wearing two hats and and having to swap between, you know, if you do find yourself conflicted, just take them both off. Take them both, yeah. And decide what makes sense. Yeah. I mean, one thing I do do in the board meetings is I say, actually, we're not the exec, we are the board, because very easily in some of these non-for-profits, you can play both roles. Um, Or some people that sit on the board can play both roles. So we've got to, you know, rules of engagement at the start of each board meeting, making sure that we are here for, you know, long-term strategic play um, and governance and making sure that we've got that hat on. And if we do find ourselves going into executive land, you it's a really good no, no, Paul, it's a really good point because especially where you're on a board for a charity or organisation which is resource poor, mm-hmm it is very easy to turn to the board and ask them to be more you know, executive board rather than advisory board because, oh, here's a whole group of resources, let's ask them to do it because we haven't got anyone else. And, and that's quite dangerous as well, isn't it? Well, it's really dangerous. I mean, it's, it's dangerous in any business when an executive sits on the board and vice versa and, you know, there's, depending on which side of the fence you sit on, they should be very, very separate so yeah. that the, the board can can govern. But particularly in the non-for-profit space, I can see how it can get blurred very easy, mm-hmm. to your point. So we have made, um, for the boards that I sit on, um, and I guess just because I'm hypersensitive to it, um, having just recently completed the course, um, is, is making sure that we are here for board duties, 
um, and any exec stuff. And for, for some of them, I do dabble in the marketing, can't help myself. Um, and that's when I have, you know, an advisory hat on for that particular instance. But I'm very quick to make sure I'm always handing it back to the team for them to implement. Um, the last thing they need is another person with, you know, getting muddling their hands in it all. Well, I have anecdotes from ASX 200 boards right. where that seems to be something that many board members have, have trouble with is picking up the pen and start doing the marketing or at least having input into the marketing. It seems that everyone's a copywriter. <laughs> well, we've known that for years, right? <laughs> everyone is everyone is that. But, I mean, you know, there's a saying in the board world, you know, noses in, fingers out. Yeah. So you've just got to make sure that you um, that you maintain that and, you know, if you find yourself you know, starting to dabble in there, then it's up to the chair, I guess, to, to, to pull that back. Paul, it's been terrific talking about marketing for good with you. It's uh, clearly a passion and uh, I'm glad you could take the time to uh, share your experience and insights with us. Uh, thank you very much for having me. That was fun. I do have a question before you go, and that is, you know, of the 60,000 uh, charities, which one's the one that you put your hard-earned cash into? 